Welcome to The Rock's Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. All righty, church, happy church, let's get settled in. We are taking a look at a few more of the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount as we get situated here. We'll ask the Lord for his blessing. And Jesus, we take your word very seriously that apart from you, we can do nothing. So we're not going to make any sense about any of this without your Holy Spirit, without your good grace to open up our eyes and to soften our hearts and to get our minds to think straight about biblical truth. Lord, it's so different from the way we see life. We need you, God, because your ways are higher and different than our ways. So help us to understand and to apply so that we could be a blessing and have no regrets the day we come to see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Americans, for the most part, don't know the feeling of desperate hunger or thirst. Thankfully, there's an abundance of food and water readily available. We're never too far from the fridge or a convenience store or a restaurant, and water bottles never really leave our side, you know? And I mean, I even have water bottles stored up here in the pulpit, you know? So... Uh, Once in a while, on occasion, we do know what to hunger and thirst is all about. The thirstiest I can ever recall being was a hot summer as a young man in the Philippines over summertime uh, missionary outreach there. We were trekking through the very lush green jungles there, the mountains of the Philippines, and we didn't bring enough water, of course, and hot and humid and all of that hiking got very, very thirsty. When we arrived in the village, really one of the first things I wanted was some water, but there was no running water. And so before I had a chance to ask where to find some water, uh, we started kicking this ball around with the villagers. And so we were playing a game of soccer and uh, connecting. And so now, on top of being thirsty, (laughs) I am running around chasing a ball in 100-degree weather with 100-degree humidity. It was no fun. My tongue was cleaving to the roof of my mouth. I was beginning to feel a little woozy, I was all caps thirsty. And so (laughs) the fun and game stopped and I was quick to use my one word that I had learned in Tagalog, tubig, it means water. (laughs) And so I'm running around going tubig, tubig, tubig. And, um, you know, yeah, it's awkward. 
But when you're thirsty, dying of thirst, you, you do what you need to do. So we, uh, they took us to a mountain spring. And they're just out of the movies with the water coming off of the rocks into these big, clear pools. And just like, really, just a, like, like an, a, an oasis, I should say. And so I remember just sticking my whole face in that water and opening my mouth. I don't even think I swallowed. It just was just cold and sweet and soothing and reviving wonderful water. I don't know. Did I make you guys thirsty by talking like that? <laughs> yeah. I read something that says if you talk about being thirsty enough, you'll get thirsty. So yeah, don't get up uh, all at once to go get your drink here. But I forgot you all have a trusty bottle of water next to you. So no worries. Well, my thirst got quenched that day. And thirst like this and hunger Two is a common metaphor in the Bible, and the Bible loves to use this analogy to describe a spiritual longing for God, a hunger and thirst of the spiritual kind and spiritual nourishment, that famous psalm, Psalm 42, and the psalm we looked at, Psalm 63, this morning, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you. I thirst for the living God. And so, in fact, one of the eight blessings that are called Beatitudes from the Latin word Beatus for blessing, which Jesus uses to open up the Sermon on the Mount here, his three chapter uh, sermon that he gave at the top of a hill. So it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And so we began this last week and we made it through three of the eight blessings. And we're going to pick up with blessing number four, upside down blessing, as I've been calling them, because oftentimes, and just as Jesus' point, these blessings that make one happy in the Lord to have joy don't always feel like blessings. They're harsh realities, some of them, to the Christian life. And so Jesus kind of is giving the Christian manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the, the, there's no fine print. He's not going to pull any punches. He's going to say, listen, it, coming into the kingdom of God, you're going to have some harsh realities and some really uh, tough disciplines in life. It's not going to be easy. Sometimes it's going to be painful to be associated with me and the kingdom of God and standing up for biblical truth. But any hardship associated with escaping hell and, et and gaining eternal life is not really a true hardship. It it's a happy hardship. It's a blessed hardship and a cause for rejoicing. And so we're going to pick up now with beatitude number four hunger and thirst for uh, righteousness. But let's take it from the top just for our friends who weren't here last week. And there's just a few extra verses. Now when he saw the crowds, Jesus went up on a mountainside, sat down, his disciples came to him. It is directed to the disciples. That's important. And he began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So here's where we're going to be picking up. For they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We'll get to that one as well. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We'll get to that one, but no more today. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers for next time, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of being right with God. That's really the, the meaning of that word. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you. Yes, they do. They persecute you, give you a hard time, and, and lie and make stuff up about you and say all kinds of stuff against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, even though it's hurt, it hurts you. Because great is your reward in heaven. Have a heavenly perspective. Fast forward the tape in your mind and you'll be happy. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, so you're in good company. We can go back to, uh, oh, we can leave that right there because that's where we're going to pick up there at verse 6. And so... Yes, so Jesus has been, re, we, been preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is coming near to you. And in order to get into that kingdom, you'll have to be changed. You'll have to change. And so that's what repent means. And so now he sat down with them and said, let me show you what that repentance, what that change will entail. And some of it is harsh realities, but they are blessed realities because it ends up in heaven. And so uh, this is a, there's a paradox in every paragraph and shouldn't it be because as I prayed this morning, his thoughts are, are higher than our thoughts. He says, my ways are not your ways. I do stuff a lot differently than you do. And so uh, everything's a paradox. <laughs> we lose ourselves to find ourselves. And if you find yourself, oh, I really found myself. In this life, Jesus says, uh-oh, you're going to lose your life. And so it's upside down. Through loss comes gain. We give away to receive. We return love for hate. And there's a happy kind of sadness for Christ followers. And when it's a sadness for Jesus and because of Jesus, uh, it's, it's not a bad sad, if you will. And so... Throughout this sermon, if I were you, and this is what I do, when I hear sermons and when I read the Bible, I say, am I okay? It, it, am I really described here as under the blessing of God? Does this look like my life? And um, that's what we're doing here. So uh, I can just sum up the first three uh, with a sentence or two, he said, we can go back to the first there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. Uh, you can't get to heaven and experience grace without really real, realizing your own spiritual poverty. And so he says, it's a blessed fact to come into the knowledge that you have nothing to bring because in that you will seek uh, the grace of God. So spiritual losers can turn to Christ and become the grand prize winners. The next one is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, we alone, not unbelievers, grieve for our own sin. We grieve every day. Don't you feel bad about the way you fall short? 
and the sin and evil that's all around you and all of the pain and all of that and the hostility and the rejection that comes our way just because we simply want to honor the truth and the gospel. And so he says, grieve now for a moment, but be comforted by God eternally. The next one that we saw last week is the byproduct of, of realizing that you ha- are spiritually bankrupt and mourning for your own spiritual condition, it humbles you. And so all of these beatitudes really uh, are leading to the next one, right? And so you come into a humility, he calls it meekness, where we're knocked off our high horses and take our 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 position where we belong, at the feet of Jesus, not calling the shots and running our own lives. There's a Lord of the universe who created everything and before whom we bow and must give an account. And so he says, yeah, you may feel like meek, you know, you're you're taking a back seat and letting God handle everything like you're missing out, but actually you're the conquerors. Heaven's citizens those who inherit the earth even and thy kingdom come will not be the tyrants and the proud and the powerful and those who have their act together. It'll be the humble and the meek followers of Christ. There, we've got one, two, and three, and now we dive in to number four and here's how we do it. We, re- we recite it together. Uh, number four, thanks, Spence. Okay, ready? Reading. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And of course, you will not hunger and thirst for righteousness unless the first three Beatitudes have happened to you, unless you know you're spiritually, morally bankrupt, unless you're mourning and grieving your own uh, guilt and shame before God and your own hopelessness, unless you have been humbled and become meek, you're not going to be asking or seeking anything from God. And so you see how they sort of uh, play into each other here. And so let's take a look at blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's turn the page. There we go. Okay. Now, so not a comfortable feeling to be hungry or thirsty, and that's probably why it's in here as a blessing, because it's kind of a, a dull ache that never goes away, and that in this life could never totally be fulfilled. Jesus does satisfy our souls, of course, but the fulfillment it's like the already but not yet. We live in that tension, and so yes, we've been satiated. We've been satisfied, but there's more to come. And there's always that thirsting and hunger that keeps us on the straight and narrow path. Without that prompt within, you will not be blessed, but you will be cursed. That's the opposite of these. If you don't hunger and thirst for God, right, then you won't be happy or blessed. But the opposite of the word in Greek is to be cursed. So we don't want that now. He, hunger and thirst is an effective metaphor, isn't it? Now, Jesus isn't talking to overfed Westerners who waste 100,000 tons of food every year and have snicker bars uh, stuffed into their desk drawers and, and are never, as I said earlier, far from their water jugs. In ancient times in rural Middle East, they were driven daily by hunger and thirst. Imagine it. The only water available is in some well somewhere. 
That's it. You're thirsty, you go down and get it from the one place you can find it. That's it, pretty much, right? No Safeway aisles with filled with thousands and thousands of choices of beverages. No, it's catch as catch can to those to whom Jesus was speaking. Now, when Jesus says hunger and thirst, these folks sitting there, oh, they know exactly what he means. He, he's talking about not like a casual desire for, for getting right with God and the things of the Lord, you know, not kind of, yeah, you know, a Sunday morning, you know, oh, by the way, at the end of five other things, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, it's this burning, focused, passionate desire like thirst and hunger. You know, and notice he says, who hunger and thirst. It's a double duty there of a passionate focus that, 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 that puts everything else behind you. When you are ravenous, when you are parched beyond belief, this is the, these are the words he's talking about, then... Nothing gets in the way of that. You don't have a, by the way, I'm going to go do this and do that and the other thing. No, you are going to take action to satisfy that just uh, a life-encompassing urge that says drink or die, eat and live. This is what God's talking about. And isn't that the only right desire for the God of the universe who created all things and holds everything together and laid down his life and bled and died out, died out, bled out and died for us? Isn't that the only worthy kind of desire for him that's just preeminent, predominant? And so they're like, yeah, you know, I got a craving here and there to read my Bible. And here's how you know if you're hungry or thirsty for God. When you're hungry or thirsty and you're standing by a faucet, if you don't go to the faucet, you're not as thirsty as you claim to be. The faucet's right there. The Bible's right there. Does it get opened? Oh, I'm hungry for God. I'm thirsty to do his will. There's so many options for prayer in a day. There's so many options for, for serving in a church, for a church a fellowship for listening to sermons, for being prayerful, for turning on some worship music. How thirsty are you really? <laughs> you know, oh, I got a craving for In-N-Out. Oh, I can't wait to get to In-N-Out. And you go right by In-N-Out three times a day. Oh, I want In-N-Out. Oh, that smells good. I want In-N-Out. And you don't put your biker on. <laughs> That's a problem. All right, so... Now, he's saying the object of all that this, this very passionate pursuit would be righteousness, which is a difficult word in the Greek. And I always tell you, since we're not righteous by our own uh, inclinations, there is no not one righteous, not even one, right? Psalm 14. Uh, it really means to be right with God and the right life that comes from the Holy Spirit <laughs> in our hearts, that once we become right with God. And so he says, and notice this, that we can't do it ourselves. We have to be filled. 
we're passive in it. We're seeking, seeking, seeking something that we can't do. We can't get ourselves right with God. We can't wash away our sins. Our, our, our souls are stained. Oh, terrible. Have you ever had some stains that are hard to remove on your hands or in your clothing? We can't get the, the stain of sin out of us. We can't, by our own goodness, put ourselves right with God. That's why we seek. We thirst. We found blameless with him. Before him with no fault. And only he can do that. And he says, but if you are mourning your sin and you're aware of your spiritual poverty and you become humble enough to seek me, you will get everything you need for free. Don't have to earn it. You just have to ask for it, and you just have to want it. You have to want it. Now, there are a lot of things that we hunger and thirst for. Instead of the things of the Lord and righteousness, and some of those things are quite natural, uh, not necessarily wrong, but they just lack the power to satisfy the soul and eternal things when you aim at them directly. Right, so approval, recognition, who doesn't want that? Acceptance and human love, promotion, advancement in our careers, financial uh, security, happiness. We thirst and hunger for these things. And then there's the twist, the sinful twist on thirsting, which is lust and greed and coveting and selfish ambitions. I mean, we have phrases for it, power hungry, thirsting for revenge, you see. So there's lots of ways for human sinful fallen thirsts and appetites to go awry, <laughs> askew from God. And he says, I, the grace of God will give us, not only will put us right with him, but help keep us thirsting and wanting him in our lives. And that's the reason the blessings here is to encourage us, really, because it's a gnawing ache to constantly uh, desire something that we aren't fully getting completely. I mean, we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love, right? Right? And so, yeah, I get satisfied with the grace of God, but <laughs> then I'm wandering. And then, you know, everybody around me in the sin, uh, sinful, Christ rejecting world is in rebellion. And so we're thirsting for thy kingdom come and we're praying for his uh, kingdom to come. That righteousness, it's a blessed ache. And he says, it's a blessed ache because one day you will be completely fulfilled. Stuffed to overflowing. Uh, Paul the Apostle picked up on this blessed ache of a thirst. Uh, it's uncomfortable. We live in these earthly bodies, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul the Apostle. We groan and sigh because we thirst, we hunger, we desire to put on new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. So Jesus says, hey, I know it's awkward. Uh, it's difficult to have a gnawing, a sense of being undone, unfulfilled, thirsting to awaken his likeness, to be who God made you to be. Who are you? Who are you really? Where'd you come from? You came from God and God has a purpose. He has a bullseye for you. 
and we thirst and we long. Am I going to hit the bullseye for which I was created? This is an amazing thirst and hunger that keeps us on track, but it's painful, right? But I don't know about you, but I am hungry. I am hungry for a world that, of truth, a world that sees the risen Lord seated upon a throne, ruling and us reigning with him. I'm hungry for that. I'm thirsty for, for every mouth that's lying and deceiving and wounding and hurting to be shut and silenced. I am hungry for a world that, that is the way God designed it to be, and it's coming. He says, it's a blessed ache that you have for that world because it's coming. And when it appears, oh, my word, there's no surprise to me that down Main Street of thy kingdom come is a river of water. And the closing words of Revelation come. Let the one who's thirsty come and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of water of life come and drink and be fulfilled and filled. You see, why is it blessed? It's only the thirsty who will come. Only the thirsty and the hungry for God will be in heaven. Look around to all those you'll see in glory, as we call it, every one of them had a thirst and a hunger for living water, and they were filled. Let's read this together. We'll move on. Reading, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, we end up with the outworking of the being dependent on God. Now the next, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let's read it together. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Well, of course, this is the next. And the very first way that, that Jesus says, you, this is how my disciples will approach the world and treat other people. Firstly, in mercy. Why? Because they're aware of their own spiritual poverty. They're mourning for their own helpless, hopeless estate. Uh, they've been seeking a righteousness that they can't uh, create themselves. And they found it. Well, of course, the next one is. Then they approach everything they do, having been let off the hook, having known their spiritual depravity, having known now the riches of Christ and how close they came to perishing forever in a place that they deserve to go. Of course, the next one is, well, how, do I, how does this outworking go? It goes in mercy. It goes with mercy, of course. Those who've been saved by mercy show mercy. This is his point. Jesus is speaking to disciples, and he's not teaching this. Salvation by works. Oh, if you're merciful, then in life without Christ, then God will automatically be merciful to you, to any merciful person. He's not teaching that. He's not teaching that at all. He's saying that this is who you are now, who God is making you to be merciful because you have found mercy. So actually, you can't be saved by being merciful. 
You're merciful if you are saved. You can't be saved by being merciful. You're merciful if you've been saved. Now, the principle here works in life, but I don't think Jesus is stopping with how things work socially for us, but it's true nonetheless, because if you're a merciful person, guess what? People around you are going to be merciful to you. Of course, why would I uh, be hard on you when you're always easy and cutting me slack, right? If you, if you turned away from, you caught me in some sort of faux pas, some kind of social petty offense, and you're like, don't take it to heart. When I catch you, why would I uh, grab you by the scruff of the neck and say, oh, yeah, look at you? No, no. But Jesus is talking about, in the end, that the character of God's people, because they've been spared from eternal loss, are, by nature, merciful people, constantly. And so this is something that God wants us to nurture, something he wants us to have. You know, I have never understood a cold, critical, unkind so-called Christian. I've never understood a mean-spirited so-called believer. I just have never, in all of my Christian life, that's a head-scratcher for me because I don't understand it. And I'm not the only one who thinks that's absurd uh, kind of mix is that a believer who has the compassion and the love and the grace and the unmerited favor of God that, that took him uh, from hanging over the precipices of hell where he deserved to go. And then for no reason in him, God just decided, said, you know what? I'm going to show you mercy and you don't have to go to eternal hell. Instead, you're coming to eternal heaven where you're going to put a crown on your head and you're going to reign and rule with me. How can that person be cold and mean and exacting? There's no way. Though that person either doesn't get it and is saved by just God's total grace, and, and, and just the, the wires are broken. They don't get his love. They don't get the cross. They don't get their own depravity. They don't get it. Or they're not saved. That's a good one. If you're just angry and mean and bitter, you better check out, do some soul searching and find out. Because... <laughs> The way to become more merciful is to be aware of the mercy shown you and to kind of um, live in it, revel in it. Let me, let us read through Matthew 18. I think some of you already went there in your minds. Uh, the boys, I like to call the disciples on occasion, were having a hard time when Peter said, hey, should I be merciful, of, you know, seven times and forgive my brother when he sins against me? And he goes, how about this, 70 times seven? And they said, oh, oh Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus was like, let me tell you a little story. <laughs> Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him $2 million, I put it in today's uh, language for you, 
was brought to him since he, was in, he wasn't able to pay the master order that he and his wife and his kids and all that he had back in those days, they went to debtor's prison. At this, the servant falls on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. Yeah, $2 million, like that's going to happen. Verse 27, the servant's master had mercy on him. That means to give somebody what they don't deserve. They don't deserve it, but he's going to just do it anyway, canceling the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred bucks. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and said the same thing that he once said, well, be patient with me and I'll pay it all back. But he refused and said he went off and had the man thrown into prison till he could pay the debt. When the other servant saw it, the other servants, they were outraged, yeah, and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked so-called servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant for a hundred bucks? Just as I had on you in anger, his master handed over, here's some big words here, over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This, Jesus speaking, son of God, God man, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. You are not saved because you can forgive. If you don't forgive people, it is evidence that you don't know the Lord. And that is why you would not be forgiven. Nobody perishes because of a sin. Murderers don't go to hell because they're murderers. Not at all. There's nothing to do with that. Murder is a symptom of what does cause somebody to perish. It's a heart that doesn't know Christ, who's never come to know him. And so this is the way to understand. Jesus is just saying, listen, when you find that kind of person, you don't have life. There's no, there's no forgiveness. There's no reconciliation in his own heart. And so they will not be hoping for forgiveness because there's, uh, they are not evidencing that they know Christ in a saving way. And so that's the bottom line there. We can go back to that uh, Beatitude, Spencer, thank you. So the blessing listed here really is to be merciful. It's not our natural inclination, isn't it? And that's why he's saying, hey, I know it's hard, but you'll be blessed if you do it. Because when you're showing mercy, you're like, oh, they don't deserve it. You know, am I enabling this behavior? I'm letting them off the hook. He's going, no, 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 no. Vengeance is mine. Nobody gets away with anything. Uh, it's just not your responsibility to, to bring on the, the judgment. Your job is to keep your heart sweet. You leave that to me. You forgive them. That's your job. Because guess what? I forgave you a lifetime of your sins. And what they owe you is a hundred bucks compared to the two mil you owed me or more. So if I let you off of the two mil, you have not the luxury to hold and choke somebody over $10 here because you know what? You know, they didn't include me at the wedding. 
What is that? A $50 infraction. You know, maybe it's a hundred, maybe it's a thousand, but it's not two million. And God says, you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed to be patient with those who struggle, to be soft-hearted with the needy, to overlook offenses, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to pretend you didn't hear what they said about you, even though someone told you what they said about you, and they're supposed to be your friend. Oh, but you're going to go on like you never heard it. You know why? Because you're merciful, and you realize that you've done the same thing too. But you're merciful. And Jesus says, you're blessed. Because guess what? When you get to heaven, Jesus is going to say, not guilty. Because you're not guilty because Jesus died for you. Let's squeeze in one more and move a little bit faster so we can get to communion. And it's a good day for communion, isn't it? It's a good sermon for communion because I really need communion today already. I've had to live with these uncomfortable truths the whole week. <laughs> I can't wait to get over there. I've been confessing all week long. This is terrible. It is hard. And, and, and what's coming here now is the worst one of all. <laughs> Ready? Let's say it together. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, then nobody has ever got a hope in heaven to ever see him, and that's exactly what Jesus wants. He wants a gasp from the crowd because they know better. They know the scriptures. They're Jews. They go to synagogue where they, where they sing songs that have, who can say I've kept my heart pure? I am clean and without sin. No one can. That's Psalm 20. They say it in their worship service. They're Jews. They know the truth. They know their own hearts. They recite lessons in the synagogue. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. They know Jeremiah 17, 9. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it really is? Jeremiah nailed it there. Even King David, a man after God's own heart, he sings out, for troubles surround me. Too many to count my sins are piled up so high I can't see my way out. They outnumber the hairs on my head. I have lost all courage. So how in the world can we be blessed and with a promise to see God and him dangle this qualifier saying the pure in heart? Well, that, my friend, is the gospel. That, my friend, is why we have communion instituted. Because though we are not pure in heart, we can be purified in heart by the one who sets us right with him as we seek and hunger after being right with him. And so let me show you Isaiah, one of their favorite prophets, which really gives a clue to how you can, how Jesus could tell a crowd, you will be blessed with a pure heart because you'll be able to see God even though they have impure hearts. Here's, here's the clue in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah speaking, I saw the Lord 
high and exalted, seated on a throne in the train of his robe, filled the temple. Above him were these angelic creatures with six wings, two wings they covered their faces with two, they covered their feet with two. They were flying and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with glory. Verse five, woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, I'm undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My heart's impure. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of all, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the angelic beings flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my filthy mouth and said, see, this has touched those dirty lips. Your filthy guilt is taken away and your terrible sins covered, atoned for. We can leave that up here now. And so we see the good news here that Isaiah can see God with an impure heart because of what God has done. And it's prefigured here, the coal taken from the altar from the temple where the sacrifice was and the blood dripped from the altar. The worshiper came with a dirty heart and confessed the dirty heart onto an innocent lamb and holding his hands on that little bleeding, bleating and soon bleeding lamb, the priest cut the lamb. The blood dripped at the altar onto the coals and he takes a coal from one of the, that altar stained with lamb's blood and touches him and says, yeah, you have filthy heart, filthy mind. You're corrupt, but you're covered. You're paid for the burning passion of the Lord pre-typified the cross here that, that, that God would take a coal, <laughs> a live coal dipped in better blood than the lamb, than livestock, than the God, man, the sinless one, God himself in a body. His blood touched to our hearts, covered our sin, removed it. He died for it. He took it out, and then he puts a holy spirit, a pure spirit into our hearts. And now he says, when you have this hope of seeing God, you will purify yourself. So we work together. Having been purified, we also purify our hearts by weeding the garden thinking on things that are right and good by taking the power of the Holy Spirit and putting to death the misdeeds of that wayward heart that constantly wants to defile us. It's our job to keep confessing, to keep praying, to keep turning it away, to keep pulling the weeds, to keep correcting ourselves, to keep coming to God and talking to him about the ways that our heart can get defiled so easily the sin entangles us. But this is the gospel. This is the good news. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the water that flows. There it is in the kingdom, down Main Street, living water. Jesus said, I'm the living water. And what did they do to him in John 19 to make sure he was dead? They thrust a spear through his side. And the Bible is so clear to say, from his side flowed water and blood, blood to cover and atone, water to cleanse and purify. So we stand before God with pure hearts, covered, cleansed, infused with a righteousness that doesn't belong to us, but was given to us freely by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your great love. How encouraging, God, to be convicted and to feel that pressure of knowing how much we fall short and then <laughs> seeing a ray of sunshine and hope. The gospel says it's not up to you. You're not left to your own devices. I have a way to make you right and pure and clean in my sight. And God, this morning we bring our sin-stained souls. And even though you have... <laughs> thoroughly cleansed all of us. We're in Christ without any sin, really, from your point of view. We do get our feet dirty and need to be cleansed. And so we are going to bring our sins before you, God, the sins that we commit so easily with our mouth, constantly talking about proud and arrogant things which we shouldn't be saying, people's affairs that should remain private, gossip and slander and profanity. God, please, we beg you, <laughs> touch our mouths with the live coal from the altar in heaven and take away our sins. God, we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.